A number of years back, when I first started my journey of being a pastor, um, I had gone through from intern to children's pastor to missions pastor, and finally I landed at my dream role, which is like a creative pastor where I was overseeing the arts and worship and stuff like that. And I remember one day my pastor, God bless his heart, sat me down in a very serious way. He's like, Mickey, I feel like God is entering you into a new season of maturity where all the childish things are going to fade away and you're going to be Mickey, not the boy, but Mickey, the man. And to symbolize this, I feel like we should put you in front of the whole church and declare you no longer Pastor Mickey, but you shall henceforth be known as Pastor Michael. If you don't know, Michael is actually my legal birth name. I'm sorry if y'all feel deceived, but my parents were big fans of Michael Jackson before all the controversy, and they just named me after Michael, and I don't know how I got the name Mickey. It's, it's a funny story. I'll tell you one day. But somehow I became Mickey, but, but he, he wanted to do this like prophetic moment where I was going from boy Mickey to man Michael, and so he brought me in front of the entire congregation. At the time, we had three services, so he, I had to do this three times. He brought me in front of the entire congregation and he announced the entire congregation from henceforth, he shall no longer be known as Pastor Mickey, but as Pastor Michael into a new season of maturity. He used to say maturity, maturity. And so I, I remember having that moment and, and I remember it was cool and all, but, but a few months passed and, you know, people would come up to me. They'd be so confused. Like, Hey, Pastor Mickey. Oh, I mean, Mike, I mean, he'd be like Isaac, like come up to me, like stumbling on their words. Like, Hey, Pastor Mickey. Oh, I mean, Pastor Michael. And even to this day, there are some people in that season that was there with me on at, at, at that church that still call me Pastor Michael. And they would come up to me and I remember I wouldn't know how to act. And there was, there was almost a sense where like, man, maybe I need to stop being so goofy or like, maybe I need to stop smiling as much and I need to be serious, mature Pastor Mickey with wisdom and authority and power. And I remember for a few months, it felt like I was battling myself where I was I was crushed by the expectations of who I felt people needed me to be as a pastor, who people needed me to be as myself. And I remember it got to a point where I, I came up to my pastor, and God bless his heart. Like I, He was dead on. I was moving into a season of maturity, but I was like, you know, pastor, I, I don't know if I could go by Pastor Michael anymore. It just doesn't feel like me. It feels like Saul's armor, and I just need to be free to me. He's like, okay. So, so we actually went in front of the congregation again and said, okay, he's no longer Pastor Michael. He's Pastor Mickey, right? But I don't know, have you, have you ever had moments in your life where you felt the pressure to be who others expected you to be? Or maybe you felt like you needed to be someone else in order to receive love or be accepted or just simply survive. Can you resonate with ever feeling like that? Like you need to put on a mask or, or this different persona or personality or behavior so that you can be beloved. This is what some theologian, theologians, theologians, theologians and psychologists actually refer to as the false self. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. What is the false self? I think one of the most holistic definitions I, I found is this three-part definition of what the false self is. Number one, any mask we hide behind in order to get what we want in life and avoid what we don't. Okay. The second, any disguise we construct to cover our pride, fear, wounds, and needs. 
And the last, any identity we accept other than our true identity as unconditionally loved sons and daughters of God. See, while the true self represents our true feelings, our true desires, our true selves, the false self is a side of us that changes our behavior, represses our actual feelings, and pushes our needs aside in order to survive, in order to be loved and accepted. Some ways that the false self can manifest in our lives, and this might trigger some of y'all because all of these triggered me, being the child you think your parents wanted you to be, going down a career path that others pushed on you, dressing a particular way so you wouldn't be made fun of, wearing a mask at church, not, not a physical mask, but a mask of I have everything all together so you wouldn't be judged, compromising values at your workplace in order to not get fired, becoming the kind of person your partner idealizes. You see, the false self is the, the self that you think you should be so you can be loved. It's, it's the, the thing that tells you that people will only love you if you're perfect or if you put your head down and work hard, if you're strong and have it together, or people would love you more if you would just be more quiet and submissive, more physically fit, more outgoing, more disciplined. People would accept you if you achieved more, dressed better, got thinner, prayed well. It's all the lies that tell us who we need to be in order to be loved and accepted by those around us. I love uh, Claudio Narango. She actually um, describes these idealized false selves uh, according to to the different Enneagram types. And so for type ones, it's people will love me more if I am good and right. Type two, people will love me more if I'm helpful. Type three, if I'm efficient or successful. Type four, if I'm special or sensitive. Type five, if I'm wise or perceptive. Type six, if I'm obedient and faithful. Type seven, if I'm okay. That's me, (laughs) y'all. Type eight, if I'm powerful. Type nine, if I am settled. I think for many of us in our quest to find love, value, and worth, we have become people God never intended for us to be. And we've been living in our false selves for so long that we don't even know who we really are anymore. One of my favorite movies growing up was Zoolander. And there's this moment where, you know, he gets his commercial played on the TV and he's a mer, not a mermaid, a merman, right? And then he goes outside, his father ridicules him and he looks in a puddle and he says, who am I? And I find a lot of us, we go through seasons where we don't really know who we are. Like some of us have lived in our false selves so much that we actually don't know who we really are, where our false selves end and our true selves begin, right? And the vast majority, you know, Pete Scazzaro, who writes a lot about emotionally healthy spirituality, this is what he says. The vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. And this does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. Think about that. When we occupy our false selves, we're doing violence to our souls, violence to one another. And part of our formational journey, our theme this year is formation. Part of it in our quest to become emotionally healthy disciples of Jesus is learning to shed off the false layers of self to discover who we truly are. In other words, self-knowledge is key to spiritual formation. 
Knowing yourself, knowing who you are is a crucial part of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Quick rapid-fire quotes from some church figures throughout history. Augustine, he says, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Meister Eckhart, no one can know God who does not first know himself. And St. Teresa of Avila, almost all problems in this spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. Y'all, I've been pastoring for a long time now. That is an amen times a million. I think all problems, when I'm counseling people, when I'm helping people navigate their spiritual lives, all of it stems from a lack of self-knowledge, a lack of self-awareness, not knowing what's going on in the side of me, why I act the way that I act, why I feel the way that I feel. And so it's our duty, if we're serious about formation, about becoming disciples of Jesus, we have to have a a healthy sense of self-knowledge and self-awareness. In other words, to the degree we acknowledge and understand our false self and live humbly in the tension of our real self, is God going to release us into our true self? It's at the intersection of understanding our false self, being our real selves, where God releases us into our true selves. Now, we're going to do something a little different. Um, I'm going to have you guys take an assessment to assess where you guys are at. This is by no means scientific or accurate, like to a T, but it's helpful, I think, in helping us understand where we are at in navigating with our false selves. And so if you have a phone, um, anything that you could write on, it's going to be real short, I promise. But this is how it's going to work. It's a false self-assessment found in Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And this is how it's going to be. The scoring works like this. One equals not very true. Two, sometimes true. Three, mostly true. And four, very true, right? Sky is blue. What is it? Four, very true, right? Um, I ran seven miles yesterday. Maybe true, right? So one, two, three, four. You guys get that, right? And there's only 10 prompts, okay? And so here we go. The first one, number one, I compare myself a lot to others. One, two, three, or four. Not very true, which is one. Or very true, which is four. Or where in the spectrum is that? I compare myself. Yeah, yeah. Number one is not very true. Not very true is number one. And very true is number four. Just remember that. The higher the number, the more true it is. Got it? There's no always true. Just mostly true, okay? Very, very true and mostly true. All right, number one. This is not a super accurate assessment, guys. It's just helpful, okay? Number one. I compare myself a lot to others. One, not true, or four, very true. Number two, I often say yes when I prefer to say no. Jacob is definitely a number four there. There's no point fives. There's no, it's, it's a very small spectrum. Number three, I often don't speak up to avoid the disapproval of others. One, Not very true. Four, very true. Number four, people close to me would describe me as defensive and easily offended. I know some of y'all are going to put one here, but y'all need to be put in four, okay? All right. Next page, number five. I have a hard time laughing at my shortcomings and failures. Not true or very true. 
Number six, I avoid looking weak or foolish in social situations. Not true or four, very true. Number seven, I am not always the person I appear to be. And number eight, I struggle with taking risk because I could fail and look foolish. Once again, one is not very true. Four is very true. And then the last two, number nine, my sense of worth or well-being comes from what I have, what I do, or what others think of me. And last one, I often act like a different person when in different situations and with different people. Ooh, I'm excited for this. So you guys aren't tallying up the numbers, but I want you to recognize how many ones you have, how many twos you have, how many threes you have, and how many fours you have. And this is kind of the results. And once again, don't take this as like a diagnosis. This is just helpful to begin processing where we are at with our false selves. If you scored mostly threes and fours, you have a strong attachment with your false self. Most likely, this may have been a difficult, even scary or hard assessment for you. And if so, I want to tell you, don't worry. Just taking the short assessment is a great first step. And so what you want to be asking yourself is, what invitation might God be offering me through this new awareness, right? Realizing, shoot, I have a lot of threes and fours here. Where, God, do you want to take me with this information? If you scored mostly twos and threes, you have likely already begun to dismantle your false self, and God is inviting you to the next level of awareness and growth. Maybe y'all been in therapy for a while, and it's actually working, or you've been actually working and navigating through these things. Your challenge now will be truly to get beneath, to go even deeper to your interior life. And if you scored mostly ones and twos, Hooray! You likely have a healthy awareness of your true self and notice when you're slipping into a false self. And that is wonderful. You can now expect new levels of discovery as you continue through your journey. Like I said, this is not a super accurate assessment, but it helps us see where in my life am I putting on my false self in order to be loved or valued or considered worthy. Now, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, to 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, while Paul is primarily talking about our old sinful nature, he's also acknowledging the effects of our sin. Remember what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve first ate of the fruit, what's the first thing they did? They hid. They noticed their nakedness and they hid in shame. And we've been trying to hide and conceal ever since that moment. We conceal who we truly are with our false selves. And Paul is challenging us here to shed off the old false self and to step in to our new true selves in Christ. In other words, God is calling us out of living a pretend life into living a life that is full in him. He's calling us to shed off the layers that we've accumulated of the false self that we've buried ourselves under to be free to be our true selves in Christ. 
Psychologist Bill Klotkin, he actually calls our false selves, he calls it the survival dance. And imagine with me, like, it's, you're in a, a sea of people, a crowd of people, and you're just trying to fit in. And so everyone's doing a certain movement. Have you ever been to a wedding and they do those really cheesy group dances where everyone knows the step to, and you just kind of fall in line and you do what everyone else is doing so you don't stand out or so you're not, you're not ridiculed or anything like that? We're just dancing so that we can fit in. We become who we need to be in order to survive, in order to be accepted. But, but he calls, when we learn to shed ourselves of our false selves and we enter into our true selves, he calls this our sacred dance. And for many of us, we haven't entered into our sacred dance, which is a new rhythm of life marked by the freedom of who we truly are instead of who we think we need to be. Shedding ourselves of the heaviness of pretending and expectations and stepping into the divine. I don't know about y'all, but when I go to a wedding, there's three modes I enter into on the dance floor. The first is just, all right, we just ate, we're just chilling, all the clothes are still on, we're just dancing, we're just having a good time. Number two, I loosen my collar a little bit, loosen my tie a little bit, trying to loosen up. But the third mode, I take off my jacket, untuck my shirt, and I let loose, right? And some of us, we've been living so restricted. We've been living in the survival dance, just moving along in life so that we can just get by. But God calls us into the sacred dance. You'll loosen up that tie. Move like your life depends on it. And the sacred dance is the place where God longs for us to live. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced a place where you could just truly be yourself? I hope that some of you guys share that with each other, where a place you don't need to wear masks. We're not anti-mask church, by the way. Please wear your mask. There's, There's more cases. But I'm talking about the false mask that we wear over ourselves so that we can fit in or feel the pressure to be someone you're not. Have you ever experienced a place or a time or people where you don't have to pretend? where you could be truly yourselves. Maybe it's at home with your family. Maybe it's with your closest friends. But the question I want to ask is, what if we could live this way wherever we are, every context we're in, in your workplace, in your relationships, at your church? What if we could live into our true selves? Thomas Merton, who actually writes a lot about this, he says this, every one of us is just shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life, and such a life cannot help but be an illusion. The secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. Therefore, I cannot hope to find myself anywhere except in him. Therefore, there is only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend to discover myself in discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. Woo! So good. And so what is the true self that we're talking about David Benner, who's a Christian psychologist, he defines it this way in most simplest terms. It's your total self as you were created by God. The true self who is in reality who you are and who you are becoming. It's not something you need to construct through a process of self-improvement or deconstruction or any psychological analysis. It's you as you truly are in totality. Your true self is who you are and who you've always been in God. A poet uh, describes it as the face that we had before we were born. 
Um, the psalmist would refer to it as who we were when we were knit together in our mother's womb, who God imagined us to be before the beginning of time. It's who you are before having done anything right or having done anything wrong. It's who you are before even having the thought, who am I? You know what I love about Zion? Zion inspires me every single day. I've, ad, I've, I've officially graduated into pastor mode where I talk about my kids and use it as analogies for Father God, right? I'm, I'm at that level now. But every time I look at Zion, I always think, you are so free. Like You have no worry about being anyone other than your true self. I'm like, man, we need to live like that. I need to live like him. I need to be crawling around the house naked and pooping in my diet. I need to live free. Maybe not that free, but some sort of free. Another poet, Charles Bukowski, he says, can you remember who you were before the world told you who you should be? And I think a lot of us, it would, it would do us so well to remember that. Who were we? To be childlike again. Not childish, but childlike. Being who we truly are. My man TM, Thomas Merton again, he says, at the center of our being is a point of nothingness, which is untouched by sin and by illusion, a point of pure truth, a point or spark which belongs entirely to God, which is never at our disposal, from which God disposes of our lives, which is inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind or the brutalities of our own will. This little point of nothingness and of absolute poverty is the pure glory of God in us. It's like a pure diamond blazing with the invisible light of heaven. It's in everybody. And if we could see these billions of points of light coming together in the face and blaze of a sun that would make all the darkness and cruelty of life vanish completely. There is a center that we have that has been untouched by sin, untouched by the weight of expectation, untouched by rejection and pain and brokenness and hurt and rejection. It's pure. And what, un, what shedding the false self and tapping into our true selves is, is tapping into that center who God created you to be unapologetically and freely. And so how do we shed our false selves off and how do we live out of our true selves? There's three things I want to leave you with. There's probably a million things that we can do, but these three things I think are going to be helpful in our collection of sermons. The first is this. We got to learn how to feel our feelings. Evagrius of Pontus, he was a desert father. He summarized it best. He says, you want to know God? First, know yourself inside and out, the deep places. In other words, the pathway to God begins with self-knowledge. And so we begin by asking questions like, what am I doing? How am I feeling? How is what I'm doing impacting others? But a lot of us, we stop there, right? We stop by just learning how to um, connect with what we're feeling. But, but actually, we're called to move on to an even deeper place, which is not just what or how, but why. Why am I always feeling the way I'm feeling? Why am I always in a hurry? Why am I so impatient? Why am I feeling so anxious about this? Why does this person make me so angry and triggered? Why did I get defensive when she said that? Why do I avoid conflicts? I think a lot of us, we've barely scratched the surface of how. We don't know how we're feeling, let alone diving into the why. And the why is the magic spot of discovering who we are and why we are the way that we are. And this is pretty much what you do in therapy. If you 
you've been in therapy for a while, you start with the hows and the whats, but the deeper thing that you're after is the why. The why. And most of us, we haven't done this, and we end up living in perpetual cycles of our false selves as, as a result, damaging ourselves and others in the process. In other words, when we're not in touch with what's going on inside of us, we're not living in reality. And when you're not living in reality, you're not living in spirituality because authentic spirituality is not an escape from reality. It's an absolute commitment to it. Spirituality, authentic spirituality is facing reality as it is and being unafraid and saying God can meet us here. But sadly, our failure to recognize what's going on inside of us actually causes us to miss out on a lot of the gifts that God gives us. And I think we know that God, you know, he likes to speak to us through feelings of joy and peace and like excitement and love. But how many of us are open to God speaking to us through emotions like sadness or anger or depression? I think we forget that Thomas in his feelings of doubt was the one that was actually able to touch the scars of Jesus. I think we forget that Peter, in his feelings of fear, was actually the one that was able to walk on water. In our feelings that we deem emotional or bad or unspiritual, God longs to speak to us. How much of God do we miss because we gloss over certain emotions instead of leaning into them? Um, I love this book actually even talks about how our bodies, God speaks to us through our bodies. How many of you know that more often than not, our bodies know our feelings even before our minds do? And so, like, sometimes God speaks to you through the knot in your stomach, right, or the muscle tension or the headaches or the suddenly elevated heart rates. I know God spoke to me when Krista and I were grabbing dinner uh, seven, no, eight years ago, and all of a sudden I felt those butterflies, and I knew the Lord was speaking to my heart. This is the one, right? God often speaks to us through our bodies. He may be screaming at us through our physical bodies while we keep looking for him in more spiritual or conventional places. And so what do you need to do to recognize and feel your feelings? What do you need to do in your life in order to access how you are and what you are doing and why you are doing? Maybe it is therapy. And actually, one thing that we are going to roll out, um, one thing we created a budget for for this specific collection, uh, I know a lot of you guys are in therapy, but if you're longing to try it out, uh, we're actually going to cover 50% of your first therapy session if you're really serious about it. And so if you are longing to take this journey and you want to enter into therapy, but you don't have the resources, um, come find me after service. We actually created a budget just for that, right? So maybe it's therapy. Maybe it's journaling and learning how to process your emotions, taking time to pause and ask, how am I really doing? Maybe it's meditation, but number one, we have to learn how to feel our feelings. Number two, we have to learn how to renounce the lies of our false self. Henry Nguyen, he actually lays out what's known as the five lies of identity, the five lies that we attach to who we are. And the first is this, I am what I do. Especially in San Francisco, this is prevalent. Our culture asks, what do you do? What have you actually achieved? 
How have you been useful? And so many of us attach our sense of worth and identity to what we do, what can we can accomplish, and to our success. But God flips this on us. If you remember Jesus' baptism, and we talk about this all the time, Jesus' first 30 years of life, he did nothing, didn't heal a single person, didn't preach a single sermon. He did nothing that he felt maybe others might have thought what the Messiah would have done in the first 30 years of his life. But he comes to this moment where he gets baptized in the Jordan by John and the heavens open up and God in a booming voice says, this is my beloved son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. What, what was that moment about? The father was saying, even before you've done a single thing, you are my beloved. That is who you are not what you do, what you can do for me, what you can accomplish. And I think so many of us, we've attached who we are to what we can do for God. And so we go through these seasons of guilt. Come on, y'all been there? Seasons of guilt. I'm not doing enough for you, God. I'm not stepping into my destiny. I don't know what you've called. I don't know why I'm here on this earth. And we feel like we're somehow distant from who God's called us to be. But no, your identity first and foremost is you are beloved before you've done a single thing. I think many of us are addicted not to drugs or to alcohol, but to the adrenaline rush of doing. That's why we can't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Even when you're out of the office, you're not clocked out. When you're on vacation, you're still plugged in. Even when you're in bed, you're still plugged into the matrix of social media. See, we are always tempted to define who we are by what we do. Earthly success tempts us to find our worth outside of God's free love for us. For number one, the lie, first lie, I am what I do. Number two, I am what I have. Our culture measures value by what we own, the nicest car, the biggest house, the highest paying job, the prestigious degree, the gucciest of clothes, the perfectest family. And we're constantly tempted to look around at what everyone else has and notice everything that we don't. How many of you have ever felt less about yourself when you see others with more than you? Maybe it's your coworker who gets a higher salary. Maybe it's that friend who's at a different stage of life and they, are, they already own a house and have a car and have a family. How many of us have felt less about ourselves when we see what others have? But this doesn't just manifest in material things. It We also determine our worth by the power we have, by the status we carry, by the privilege that we yield. All of these things our culture tells us to define ourselves by, but earthly possessions, they tempt us to find our worth outside of God's good and perfect gifts for us. The second lie is, I am what I have. The third, I am what others think. We live in a world that is over-obsessed with what others think of us. What should I say or not say to people? Who should I date? Should I tell that person that they hurt me or should I avoid conflict? What career should I pursue? And our self-confidence is often wrapped up in other people's judgments of who we are. And so our self-confidence soars with the compliment, but it's utterly devastated by a criticism. And that's why, you know, one time when I started my music career, I was putting out YouTube videos online, and I, I might have shared this visual. I don't have it with me, but there's like tens of hundreds of, of amazing comments saying, oh my God, your rap is great. You make such good music. I didn't expect this out of your mouth with a face like yours, things like that. But there's like one or two comments like, oh my God, this is lame. 
And you are so whack. And I remember out of the hundreds, those two negative comments would eat up at me. And I know many of us, maybe you operate that way where everyone could be okay with you, like you, affirm you, love you. But that one person that says something bad about you or criticizes you just utterly devastates you. True freedom comes when we no longer need to be someone special in other people's eyes. And we know that we are lovable and good enough. And we're content in that. The fourth, I am nothing more than my worst moment. Some of us are stuck in a repeat of our worst moments, and it replays again and again in our minds. You ever seen the movie Groundhog Day where Bill Murray wakes up every single day to the same moment? Some of us are waking up every single day, picking up from our worst moment, and we're living out of that. But God's saying you're so much more than your worst moment. That is not who you are. And the last, I am nothing less than my best moment. Just like our worst moments don't define us, our best moments don't define us either. And there's a temptation to think that we're only our best selves when we reach the heights of our best moments. But how many of you know that we can be our true selves in the deserts, in the valleys, in the hard and the dark places? In fact, I would argue Jesus was arguably the most himself when? When he was on the cross, when he was suffering. And so I am nothing less than my best moment. These are the five lies of identity and part of this, the process of shedding off our false self and entering into our true selves is learning to identify these lies and renounce them. You are more than what you do. You are more than what you have. You are more than what others think. You are more than your worst moment. You are more than your best moment. You are so much more. And what is the truth? It's this. I am loved and I am enough. I am loved and I am enough. Some of us, this is, this is the sermon right here. This is all you need. Amen. I, I got a little more actually, but for you, this is it. I am loved. I am enough. This is the truth that God's called you to live in. And the last thing, we've talked about it at the beginning of this year, but I think one thing that helps us shed our false selves is befriending silence. Blaise Pascal wrote, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit quiet in a room alone. Like, dang, extroverts. Enneagram type sevens, ENFPs, this is for you. A lot of our miseries are derived from not being able to sit with ourselves in silence. We're so full of distractions, worries, and plans that our inner world is jam-packed, leaving no room for God to fill us. But in silence, we posture ourselves to let go, let go of our will. Let go of our agendas. Let go of our need for control, for approval, for security. Listen, hear me, church. The longer that I've been walking with God, the more that my times of prayer actually look like times of just silence. You know, when I was first in faith, you know, I used to look up to the people that pray like hours and tongues and like they're praying loud and they're weeping. But I don't know, something about now in this season of my life after walking with God so long, I, I really honor people that can sit in silence long enough to be really transformed by God. In silence, I realized how many of my prayer requests were actually coming from a place of fear and a loss of control. I think we don't learn to realize that until we learn to sit in silence. Silence actually even changed the way that I intercede for people. I realized that so many of my prayers for people were corrupted by my self-will and self-interest. Like, I'd be praying, Lord, 
not another one to New York. May it be your will that San Francisco is, I'm just kidding. But for real, I think some of us, when we pray and when we intercede, we're actually imposing our self-will instead of trusting in God's will for us. And so sometimes we're called to sit in silence where we say, God, today's not about my prayer request, not my agenda or my will. I just want to fully adopt what's on your heart. In silence, I learned to let go of clutching and release myself and others into God's hands. In silence, we let go of our agendas. Imagine yourself on a river, which represents God's love. I think rather than resisting surrender and trying to swim upstream against the current, silence is saying yes to the flow of God's love, allowing him to carry us where he he needs us to be. Um, I've never swam in a river because I don't swim, but I could swim well enough where in Indonesia one year, uh, there's this lake with a waterfall, and I was able to swim across the lake um, to a midway point, which is a tree trunk protruding from the water, and then swim to the other side of the waterfall where the rocks were at. And so I, I'm not completely horrible at swimming. I could swim enough that much. But, but the next year that I came back, the tree trunk in the middle had sunken. And so if I wanted to get to the waterfall, I had to do a straight shoot. Now, one thing about my swimming abilities, I don't know how to breathe while swimming. And so I just... I don't know why I thought I could do it, but I made the attempt that year. And so I start swimming and I'm holding my breath and I'm getting closer to the waterfall. But also, I guess there was a bit of a drought the year before. So the waterfall was a little stronger this year. And so as I got closer to the wall, the, the current of the water kept pushing me away from the wall. And about 2.1 seconds in, I started panicking, and I started flailing my arms, and I was literally going to die and drown. But luckily, an Indonesian pastor was just swimming next to me, like, so happy, like, ha, 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 like, blowing water out of his mouth. I grabbed his head in desperation. I dunked him underwater, and I pulled myself and clawed myself onto the rocks to survive. Um, And then the pastor, like, emerged from the water. He's like, ha, 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 yeah, so, and water's up his nose, and he's, like, suffering, but... But if you've ever felt going against the current, going against the natural flow or the order of things, I think a lot of times silence actually enters us into a place where we're no longer resisting God, where we're no longer trying to go against the stream and the flow of what he's doing. And we say, God, would you carry me where you want me to be? Silence slows us down enough to receive God's love without distractions. God's love is always flowing to us, but we rarely create spaces to just sit and receive it. I love what an author says in silence. He says, God works like an archaeologist, and he's digging through the layers of our hearts, level by level, unearthing the treasures buried beneath. And the Spirit separates that which is good and that which is of God, that which we need to hold on to and that which we need to let go of. Thomas Keating, he actually says, hence, as we progress toward the center where God actually is waiting for us, we're naturally going to feel that we're getting worse. But this warns us that the spiritual journey is not a success story or a career move. It is rather a series of humiliations of the false self. When we're getting peeled, those layers that we've put over ourselves, it hurts sometimes and it's scary, but it's good. And sooner or later, we all come to face, come face to face with the hardest of realities of our lives, the monsters within the shadows and the strongholds that are in us, our inner demons. And while difficult, this is a good thing because God never surfaces what he's not ready to deal with. He never brings to light that which he's not ready to heal. 
And so in silence, we surrender our false selves to God and allow him to show us who we really are. Um, I'm going to skip those next two quotes. And so, number one, we have to learn how to feel our feelings. Number two, we have to learn how to renounce the lies. And number three, we have to learn how to befriend silence. And as we do these things, we'll find the false selves, the layers that we've put over us being shed off. And we, we find ourselves entering into who God's truly created us to be. I think for many of us, there was a time where we needed those layers of false selves to survive. My high school was like 99% white. I was the, literally the only Korean in my class. Like, there was one black kid in our entire grade, right? That was the kind of school that I was in. And there were, there were some selves that I had to put on just to survive just to make it in that setting. Maybe you, maybe you understand that as people of color or maybe being in different settings or atmospheres where you had to put on these false selves to survive, to be accepted, to love. But there comes a time where we outgrow the need for those false selves. And actually to remain in those false selves, we actually do damage to ourselves and stunt our growth. And I hear what God's saying to some of us today is that he's calling us out. We have outgrown the need for those false selves, for those masks and disguises and identities that we've put over ourselves. In Luke 5, I'll end with this. Jesus, he gives this illustration. He says this, No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better." What's Jesus saying? Some of us, you're in a season where God wants to pour new wine into you, where he's, he has blessings and gifts that your old wineskin, the self that you have been, the mode that you were in, the stage that you were in is no longer adequate to hold the new things that God has for you. And he's saying, in order to receive the new wine, to receive what I'm doing right now, to receive everything that I have for you, you have to shed away the old wineskin and you have to make room in a new wineskin for the new things that I'm doing. And for some of us, this looks like shedding off those false selves, doing work inside of ourselves to discover who is it that God has actually created me to be. And so today I want us to reflect on this. Why don't we close our eyes and I want to invite you into a time of response. Maybe the self, the false self-assessment was really resonant with you. Maybe it revealed a lot. Maybe it didn't. But regardless, I feel like God is inviting some of us to let go of our old wineskin. I feel like God is calling us to shed off those layers of false self. The, the us that we feel like we need to be in order to please others. The us we feel like we need to be in order to be loved, to be accepted. The us we feel like we need to be in order to survive. And God's saying, you don't need that anymore. You have outgrown. You are outgrowing that. And in this new season, I'm calling you to actually step into your true self. The you that I've known from the beginning of time. The you that I fell in love looking at. The you that you were always created and meant to be. And so right now, whatever that false self might look like, maybe you have believed the lie that I am what I do. Maybe you have believed the lie that I am what I have 
that I am what others think, that I am nothing more than my worst moments and nothing less than my best moments. Right now, just reflect with God and begin surrendering, saying, God, I give you my false self. I shed these layers for you so that you can come and have your way with me. Right now, just reflect with God and allow him to speak with you.